Good morning from me. It's great to have you with us. If you're here for the first time, I'd love to just welcome you as well and invite you to please go to the welcome lounge afterwards, ask questions, get a nice welcome and personal conversation and cup of coffee. We'd love to make sure that you know you're welcome and get any questions answered that you have. Um, I don't know if I said already, my name's Tim, uh, and we're going to be continuing in Exodus, and uh, we've reached chapter 32. So if you want to open your Bibles to Exodus 32, and uh, uh, we're going through 32, 33, 34, um, and there's so much that happens in these chapters that I really do need to pray. Father, we thank you so much for being the God who is determined to be present with his people. We thank you so much that that has always been your desire and has been your plan to have a people for your own treasured possession. We thank you that you've been here this morning, present with us. And we pray you'd make your presence known as we open your word and we hear, we hear your words. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. God, we're not here to go through the motions. We're not here to tick off something on a Sunday morning. We come to the presence of God or we waste our time. So, presence of God, please, come speak to us. Move us forward. Impact our hearts. We ask these things in line with your heart, in line with your desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're here at chapter 32, and uh, by this time, the Israelites are encamped at the, the, the base of Mount Sinai. And God had, as we've looked at through the weeks now, uh, taken his people out of slavery, but not just for passivity. He'd taken them out of slavery into himself. He wanted to draw them to know himself. And if you were here yesterday... We had a wonderful morning where we looked at the biblical teaching on the end times, and it was so glorious to be reminded it doesn't actually even just stop there. It's not just out of into him. It is out of into a journey with him where he is taking us to a new heavens and a new earth. There is a glorious new heavens and a new earth where every tear will be wiped away, where the uh, riches of Christ will be ours to explore for eternity. It's incredible, and it does change the whole perception. I haven't just brought you out so that you can muddle through and just think, well, I don't really understand. I brought you out to have a vision, to take you somewhere. Come, trust me, I'm taking you somewhere. And it's so encouraging as believers to be reminded, this is our story. Their story is our story. And we've learned week after week so much about our story through their mistakes and God's faithfulness through it. He had rescued his people from slavery, but he had also, uh, and, and freedom, uh, but it had also, they'd found it more difficult than they expected. Do you remember we thought, we, we looked at how, you know, God had heard their cry and they, they'd celebrated, yes, we're going to be free at last, 400 years of slavery. But it wasn't long before they found this freedom's hard work. This is tough. Freedom's difficult. Wilderness is not a walk in the park. And uh, in Egypt, life may have been cruel, but at least we had the Nile to drink from. At least we had meat and, and bread. Uh, our, our masters may have been tyrants to us, but at least we could see them. 
At least we, we knew what was coming day by day. There was some sort of predictability about it all. And now we're being asked every day to solely depend on the trustworthiness of a God that we can't see. Every day, that's all we've got. And that can be your experience. You can think, is this, this is so hard. I'm trying to depend on this God that I can't see every day. It's so difficult for them in one perspective. But I want us to think about a different perspective as well. We can feel this difficulty sometimes. A bit like Peter when Jesus called him out of the boat. Come, trust me. Come out of the boat. Actually, Peter was the one who asked. Jesus said, okay. Peter gets out. And he's focused on Jesus, but then he starts to see the other things as bigger. The wind and the waves start to be bigger to him, bigger problems than the one standing in front of him who not only controls the wind and the waves, but created the wind and the waves. He takes his eyes off of him and puts his eyes on the created things rather than the creator God and starts to sink. It doesn't go well for him. And sometimes... We can, uh, we can give in to that. We can see the difficulties of life rather than see the creator of life. And people think of Christians and people think of people with faith as people who fundamentally have thrown their brains away and believe things that aren't true. That's what they think we are sometimes. But I want us to remember, and God wanted them to remember, this is not blind faith I've called you to. This is not throw your brain away. He kept reminding them of who he was and what he had done. He has shown himself again and again and again to be faithful and to be in control. Again and again and again. I am sovereign and I'm faithful to you. I am a gracious and kind God. I brought you out of slavery. He's shown himself to be faithful in extraordinary ways. And he has been present with them throughout. So by the time that they reach the base of Mount Sinai, it's not actually that they've, been, they've had this experience where it's like, well, we've just had to trust this invisible God. Actually, no, that isn't their experience. And they need to remember, that's not your experience. And sometimes you need to remember as a Christian, that's not your experience. Your experience is that you've been saved by one who's brought you out of death and into life who has been faithful every step of the way, who created everything that you are currently going through. He's aware of what you are going through. He had already displayed to them that he is the one superior God over all the false gods of Egypt because one after the other after the other, he took them apart with plagues and said, no, that God has no control over the thing they say they have control over. I have control over it. Again and again and again, through these plagues, he showed himself to be the superior God. He showed that he is gloriously present with them, actually, through the pillar of cloud, the glory of God with them, manifest with them, the pillar of fire protecting them, showing them the way. Actually, you couldn't have said in that time, I wonder if there's a God. Someone would have said, yeah, he's right there, look. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, right there, there he is. So actually, he was, he was visually present with them a lot of the time and had provided and had given them guidance and had protected them. We have a God who's protected us and guided us. He had mightily parted the Red Sea. They had walked through on dry ground. They had come to the place, the position where there was no way. And with man, it is impossible. But with God, 
all things are possible. He made a way where there was no way. Sound familiar? That's our story. No, it's not just, I've got to just trust in this invisible God and he's never shown me anything. No, he's brought you through where there was no way. This was their experience. He's made bitter waters sweet. They came to an oasis and it was, it was bitter water. They couldn't drink it. But he miraculously made it sweet. For you, he has given you the ability to do things that you never could have done previously. He has made things possible that were not possible for you. He provided an abundance of manna and quail daily. He provides for us daily. Jesus said in the the Lord's Prayer, pray, give us today our daily bread. But it's hard work. I'd rather have it all set out. Yeah, but the whole point is I want you to trust me daily. I want you to say, I don't need tomorrow. You have tomorrow. I need you. And so God's teaching them and training them, and they've learned. They're supposed to have learned. He's produced water from a rock. He's won many battles against invade, or a battle against an invading army. And he's delivered this glorious foundation of the law so they might have a, a society that would flourish. God has been faithful to them again and again and again. He has not been an absent God. He's been with them. And you can sometimes think, God, you're just absent. Where are you? And it's like, look up. Look up, think back. All that is good and right and holy. Think on these things. Don't just, you know, for every one look at, at, uh, at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Think on these things. Think of his faithfulness. And like a father, God had taken responsibility for these people. He loved them. He protected them. He provided for them. He taught them. It wasn't just about his provision. He, taught, he wanted their minds to be changed, to be renewed. He wants your mind to be renewed by truth. He wants them to remember things. He said again and again, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I'm your deliverer. When things got surprisingly more difficult with the, with the bricks without straw, he said to them again, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And then on the day they left Egypt, remember this day, he said to them, which you came out of Egypt. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out. God desires that we get these things in our hearts and in our mind. This is who he is. This is the one I come to. This is the one who's trustworthy. It's not blind faith. It's not throw your brains away. No, it's he shows you. He's shown you. He's delivered you. He's opened up your eyes. No one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Spirit. His Spirit has come upon you. And he would say to them, don't throw that away. Remember, remember, remember. You've been rescued. You've been well loved. You've been well taught. And you've known the extraordinary privilege of God's presence with you. And they had loved it. They had actually agreed to consecrate themselves to him. All that you've asked of us, we will do. They got to the point where they say, we love this God. We trust him. We will do what you say. And then Moses goes up the mountain to speak with the living God. Moses goes up to speak with God. And this is where we reach chapter 32. And we're just going to look at the first four verses here. And actually, it's quite heartbreaking. It says this. When the people saw that Moses... Delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us out of Egypt, 
We do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Well, take off the rings of gold that are on the ears of your wives and your sons and daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What on earth? Moses is up with God and delays a little while. And how quickly they've turned. God in this passage calls them a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked people were determined, determined. Ironically, a bit like a bull. Determined, I'm going this way, I'm going this way, I won't be turned. They were turned to God, how quickly they've gone back. They won't come to God. It's unbelievably sad. It's, It's actually like a... A bridegroom, sorry, a bride, cheating on her husband on the honeymoon. The people have only just promised to commit to God. They've just consecrated themselves to him. And he's with Moses designing what this marriage will look like. In love and affection for his people, they're up the mountain saying, it will be like this. This will be how we uh, base this society. This marriage is going to look like this. And down the bottom of the mountain... His new bride is going to another one. Having an affair is quite heartbreaking. And God is heartbroken and God is angry, rightly so. And we're going to look at this concept that, hap- that, that, that is spoken about in chapter 34 that many people find a difficult concept, a difficult word to be spoken of God. It says this in chapter 34, verse 14, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. The Lord is a jealous God. That's our first thing we're looking at. The the Lord is a jealous God. Maybe you might be uncomfortable with the fact that God is called a jealous God. Perhaps you're uncomfortable with a God who demands love and affection. You ever, I don't know, in high school or whatever, had a girlfriend or boyfriend, and it was like, you're needy. You demand my attention. You're so jealous. And we think, that's God's like that? And it doesn't sit well with us. We need to unpack this. We need to understand a God who demands love and affection. We, We think it can't be right that God would be angry if we don't give our hearts to him, but give our hearts to another. It can't, that doesn't make sense. Jealousy seems like an ugly trait to not be able to handle it if somebody else gives attention or affection to another. But he does speak like this. The first command that Jesus says is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind. Interestingly, Oprah Winfrey spoke about this. She says this, I happened to be sitting in a church in my late 20s and I was going to this church where you had to get there at 8 a.m. or you couldn't get a seat. A very charismatic minister preached and everybody was into the sermon. The great minister was preaching about how great God was and how omniscient and omnipresent and God is everything. Then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said jealous. Something struck me. I was like, I think about 27 or 28 and I'm thinking God is all. God is omnipresent and God's also jealous. Jealous? God is jealous of me? 
something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and God is in all things. Now, don't follow Oprah, but it's interesting to hear that point of view from her. Maybe that's been your struggle at times when you heard this phrase. The reality is God says nothing is to be loved more than me. Nothing is to be loved more than me. What is he, some kind of egomaniac? Matthew 10, Jesus says, If anyone loves mother or father or daughter or son more than me, is not worthy of me. God is jealous for our love and affection because it rightly belongs to him. It rightly belongs to him. See, we want to decide for ourselves what we're satisfied in. We want to decide for ourselves what we love and what we find lovely. The human heart doesn't like to be told what to do. We're rebellious. We're proud. You're not going to tell me who to love. Who has the right to demand our worship? Who do you think you are? And let me tell you, that is exactly the right question to ask. Who does he think he is? John Piper says this, God, with all his heart and soul and mind and strength, loves God. Did you know that? God delights in his glory. I thought he was all about me. No. He's about himself. He rejoices in his magnificence. He is not an idolater. He always makes, has himself at the center of his infinitely worshipping heart. What's going on here? What's going on? This I thought God was, uh, he loves me, he's all about me, he's wrapped. No, he's wrapped up in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Wrapped up in the beauty of one another. What does it mean, what John Piper is saying? What does it mean that God is first and foremost wrapped up in himself? Well, what if, in fact, God was completely worthy of all the worship? What if he was? Like the Bible says, what if he's worthy of all the worship? And I don't mean like a good performance. You go to a concert and someone plays the violin well, yet you're worthy of a round of applause. Well done, worthy. But it doesn't make any difference whether I actually clap or not. No, he's worthy in a way that it makes all the difference, whether he gets that glory or not. I mean, what if God is infinitely good and wise and loving as he says he is in his word? Suppose he knows what's best for you. He really does. And suppose he really is who he says he is, the perfect, holy, greatest good that there ever was and ever will be. The greatest joy, the greatest pleasure in existence. What if he really knows that no other being holds the same glory and good as him? And what if we really are completely dependent on him for our greatest and deepest happiness and fullest joy? If we're really dependent on him for that, for the fullest life, then he's not an egomaniac. He's in line with the truth. What does his jealousy mean in light of all of that? God calling out a people for himself is like a loving husband wanting to perfectly love his wife. He wants a perfectly loved wife. He wants a perfectly loved people. His people find their joy in him, their life and their satisfaction in him. His greatness, his wisdom, his strength, his perfect love and care. And he would love them perfectly into their fullest joy. 
His desire is to love you into life. Love you into joy. Love you into the fullest experience of life. That's God. Again and again, he describes his people as his betrothed. His betrothed. He makes a covenant with his treasured people. And in the New Testament, the church, his chosen people are described as Christ's bride who he has given himself up for that she might be perfect. Perfect in beauty, but perfect in joy. Perfect in peace. Perfect in holiness. Perfect in righteous vibrancy. I'm alive in him. I'm enraptured with him. He gives me everything I need. That's what God wants to do. He wants to love us into where life will be found, into himself. So his jealousy is that no one else would wrongly take our affection and in so doing completely fail to give us what only he can give us. Again, John Piper says this, the jealousy of God is the measure of his zeal for our happiness in him. His anger at our spiritual adultery, at our having other lovers besides him, is a reflex both of his zeal for his own worth, he knows what he is worth, and also as a reflex of his zeal for our joy. He knows where we will be most fulfilled. If we turn away from him as our greatest treasure, we turn away from our greatest pleasure. God's jealousy is him saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is God's heart saying, that I, can't, I can't just say, oh, it's fine. You go after others. That's fine. I'm, I'm humble. No, that's, that's not humility. That's a lie. No, he has to consistent with what is the truth. You will only find joy in me. He knows who he is. He knows he's the only one of being on the throne, worthy of being on the throne in your life. And James uses the language of an adulteress when he sees God's people go after the world. And this is what's happened in this passage. The, the Israelites have gone after another thing. They have exchanged the truth for a lie. And we read that again in Romans 1. They are more loyal to their oppressors than their liberator. They've gone back into slavery. They preferred slavery over redemption. And we find ourselves there too. So we find ourselves getting this poor exchange at times where we might go after another. We find freedom in God. We discover his salvation for us. And we can be amazed and excited. And then we find things get tough. Something's difficult and we start to romanticize and turn back to Egypt. We start to romanticize and turn back to things that we could put our hopes in that are false, that will actually enslave us. We could think, oh, I need something right now. I don't really care what it is, but I need it right now. God's not giving me what I need. I need some satisfaction. And we quickly turn. There's a, there's a great illustration of this in the movie The Matrix. I don't know how many of you know those movies. But they're set, I think, thousands of years ahead of us. By the time, uh, thousands of years ahead of us, machines have taken over the world. And machines use people, this is not true, okay? Uh, machines use people, it's not prophetic, use people as batteries to get their energy from. People don't know it. People are connected. And what the machines have done is put every person into a virtual reality. So they think they're just living life normally. What they don't know is they're really connected in at birth to be uh, a battery. So they're enslaved. 
They're enslaved. And in the movie, a few people manage to find their way out of this virtual reality into truth and into reality. The difficulty is, though, truth and reality, it's truth and it's real, but it's harder than the ignorance that they were in before. And there's one character who says he betrays his friends. He says to the machines, I want you to plug me back in. Ignorance is bliss. He, he, he would rather go into a lie, knowing that it's only, it's only actually draining him of life, but at least I can pretend, and at least I can just live in ignorance. And we do this. This is what they're doing. They're actually uh, choosing slavery, choosing to go to something that will give them nothing when God, the Redeemer, has promised to give them life. God has brought these people out of Egypt, and the people have exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox. Romans 1 uh, verse 25 talks about this. It says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator, sorry, the creature rather than the creator. The people wanted something to embody their hope of redemption while God and Moses seemed absent. Something they could see and feel. Anything. Does that strike a chord with you? Anything. I just need something now. When you feel that tug of anxiety, or that tug of insecurity, or you're not getting what you want, how do you tend to answer that? You tend to answer it going to a specific sort of vice that you think, yeah, I tend to just bury my head in the sand, turn the TV on, just switch off. Or maybe it's blows of anger, maybe it is alcohol, maybe it's something that you go to, you think, this will just give me what I need right now. When Aaron did as they said, they worshipped it, telling all Israel, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. How could they say such a thing? They hadn't just said, look, this will keep us going until God gets back. No, they said, no, this will now be our God. This will now be the one that we tell ourselves lies about. This is where our hope is. This is the one that's really helped us. The heart of idolatry is exchanging truth for a lie. And you might think talk of idols in 2023 is a bit ridiculous but it is the bible says the root of turning away from god in this excellent book called counterfeit gods tim keller suggests that an idol is these things an idol is anything more important to you than god anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than god anything you seek to give you what only god can give you Whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Anything that becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity. So if we're honest with ourselves, and if you just take a moment to to be honest with yourself, if you find yourself manipulating to get hold of something, If you find yourself lying so as not to lose something. If you blow up in anger or insecurity if something is threatened. Or perhaps fall apart if you do lose something. Then those things or that thing is more important to you than God. And you're choosing to renounce God rather than renounce the idol. It might be control. It might be when I am out of control, I fall apart. I get anxious. I 
when, when it seems like someone else has got control of a situation. I, I can't let God have control. I, I fall apart. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe you think, if somebody threatens my reputation, I get pretty wound up. I quite quickly get anxious or angry. Perhaps it's your comfort. I know comfort is a huge idol in this nation. Comfort is a massive idol. And I think we are silly to not think that it is. I was hearing the other day about... uh, 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 the, uh, somebody who works in another country in their job, they have to do it at night because in the daytime it's too, too hot. They have to go into a volcano daily to go and get sulfur. They have to do this in the night times, so it's too hot. And at any moment this thing could just, a little bit because it's live, and kill them. They have to get this bit of sulfur, drag it back up the hill, down for a few pennies so they can do it again the next day. And in our country we complain. Look at, the, look at the opulence that we have. Look at the comfort that we have. Comfort is a huge idol to us. It's a huge thing. And, it, it, you know, my kids, I've, my kids might, uh, they might, I might go and tuck them in at bed at night. Good night, love you. Give them a kiss. And then I go downstairs. And, and then 10 minutes later, they come down, Dad. And I go, what? And they're like, what? Why? What happened? Who's this person? Well, I've, I've logged out. I've done dad duty. I'm in me zone. I get to do what I want now. Like that. They're like, well, you just said you love me and give me a cuddle and a kiss and prayed for me. Who's this monster? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, my idol is raging. have got to be aware of these things. God, help us with these things that we can turn to. And the difficulty is that many idols are not bad things in and of themselves. Many are good things. But when things that are not God become a God, they start to punish you and those around you. They even wreck your life. Food is not bad. Comfort is not bad. Family is not bad. Doing well at work is a good thing, right? But when these things become gods, you start to compromise things to keep them in your control. And it can develop sinful habits which destroy. It comes down to control. We don't want to let God be God, but God is God. God is in control. He wants us to trust him, and he wants us to have real peace, freedom, and life, which means submitting to him. It really means letting go. And I hope and pray that some of you, even this morning, are thinking, actually, this sounds good. To think, I don't have to be in control. Oh, he's in control. That's where he wants you to find joy and peace in letting him have control. We don't like it. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. We fear being led. We, we fear letting go of control. We fear letting go of the things that hold on to us and that we hold on to for joy and for hope and for comfort because they seem to give us the meaning that we crave. We think if we let go, will our lives have meaning? Will God be good? After all, what does he, he leads people into difficult things. He leads people into wilderness. Do I want to trust him? But it's a matter of trust, a matter of worship, what we are giving our hearts to most. One further application of this before we, we move on to the end is that if you notice something that happens in here, it's laughable but also quite worrying. The excuses that we make 
and being so self-deceived in this. We can be completely deluded. We must be willing to question our desires and motives, right? Otherwise, we're committed to avoiding the truth. Let me say that again. We've got to be willing to question our desires and motives, or we are committed to avoiding the truth. The self-deception that Aaron had was laughable. He says in verse 24, They gave me the gold, I threw it into the fire, and the calf came out. It's unbelievable, right? Unbelievable blame shifting. It's not my responsibility, not my problem. He says it was the people who were responsible for the gold collection and the calf was responsible for itself. Not my doing. It wasn't me. But as we read in Exodus, God doesn't say, oh, you're funny. No, God says, the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. God's clear. You made that. He won't say, okay, uh, yeah, all right. He'll say, no, no, I hold you to account for what you've done. And if we trust God, if we want to seek him for change and life, we must be sober-minded about our sin. We've got to say, I want to get rid of this. It's robbing me of life. It's robbing me of relationship with him. It's robbing me of this beautiful thing he's won for me. He's won for me that I might take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of, of me, life in Christ. We need to be ruthless and brave and allow God and others to help us to honestly see, what am I tempted to put my hope in? What are you tempted to put your hope in at times? What, what are my emotional responses saying about my heart's desires? So when do you tend to get most wound up? When do you tend to get most angry or want to hide or want to run away? What is it that's being threatened? It's worth asking yourself these questions and, and saying, God, help me. With this, where am I most likely to compromise on what God asks of me? Why would I compromise it? Because there's some other God. Where where is that happening? You've got to ask yourself these questions, and then we need to ask, what am I worshiping? And whatever it is, remember, it is a terrible substitute for the living God. God wants you to know Him and know life in abundance. That's what Christ Jesus came for. These other things will not give you that. And the story continues. That jealous God says to Moses that his righteous anger will consume them and he will have to start again with Moses. As we've heard about this morning, God is a jealous God. He's also a just judge. We've gone through this a number of times and he says, okay, judgment's coming now. Judgment's coming. And he says to Moses, leave me alone that I may consume them. And there's an incredibly beautiful thing here. Moses takes that as an invitation. I don't think I would take that as an invitation. You know, you know the Bible says about Moses, in Numbers 12.3, Moses was more humble than any other man on the face of the earth. Wow. And when God says, leave me alone that I might consume them, Moses hears something that most of us wouldn't hear. So what happens if I don't leave you alone? He goes, no, 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 this is an invitation for me to not leave you alone. Then you won't consume them. And Moses pushes in. You see, what we're doing this week with the week of prayer is, is going to God 
with what he has said about himself and who he is. And Moses decides to do that. He decides to say, no, God, I know what you're like. I know what you've promised. I know what you've said. I know who you are. I'm not leaving you alone. I know you're a God of mercy. I know you've promised to have these people come through. I know they're your people. They're your responsibility, God. And this week, we're going to come to God in prayer and we're going to say, God, this is your responsibility. This is your responsibility, God. You've got to change this nation. Lord, you've got to wake up your church. You've got to send your Holy Spirit. These are things you've promised. We're going to do that this week. And we're going to pound on God's door and say, God, we're coming to you. That's humility. That's humility. It says in Hebrews 11.6, as Colin wrote to, read to us earlier, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God loves Moses' heart. And God knew that Moses was going to be like this. And God says, you got the invitation. Well done. God always had this plan. He knew. We could think, oh, this God is terrifying. No, God was saying, this is actually an invitation. Are you going to take it? And Moses took it. Moses came to God and said, no, God, you are this type of God. You have these promises to fulfill. You haven't fulfilled them yet. I'm taking this back to you. We've got to pray like this. God doesn't say, who do you think you are? He says, you know who I am. Who do you think I am? That's right. And this week we've got to go, God, you've said. We know who you are. As Len um, gave that uh, interpretation of that tongue, God, how long? How long must we wait for you? Please, God, move. Please, God, move. Many people here have been waiting and praying diligently for decades. Move in our nation. Move in our nation. And it looks like it's getting worse and worse and worse. God, come. We're not being arrogant. He delights in it. He delights in our, God, you're the only one that can do this. And you've promised. And you said. You said, pray, uh, my kingdom come, my will be done. We're going to pray, God, let your kingdom come then. You told us to pray it. Let your will be done. You promised to give us your Holy Spirit. You said you wouldn't give us something else. So God, send your spirit and send it with power on your church. Prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. These are your words, God. We're bringing them back to you. So our prayers are going to be effective this week. We're trusting in what you say. And God says, that's a humble heart. That is the type of heart that I'm looking for. Moses has always believed me. That's what God says. He's always believed me. God loves that. The whole nation, two million, grumbling, moaning. Moses goes, I want to get back with God. This is my happy place. So I find out truth. God's like, yes, that's the heart I want. That's what I want. Come to me. Moses believes God's words and he uses them and he always has done. And God, and the the trouble with these people was that God was on his way to destroy them. He was on his way to judge them. And Moses stepped in as a mediator. They needed a mediator. They needed a mediator. Moses had always been this mediator between God and his people. And Moses said, but now please forgive their sin. And he even said this, but if not, then blot me out of the book that you've written. He loves these people. Moses loves these people and he knows God. He's not saying, God, just let them off. He wants to uphold God's righteous holiness, but he also wants him to have mercy. He's not going to say, he's one or the other. He's saying, God, if it's, I, just forgive, please forgive them. If you're not going to blot me out. He went in as a mediator and God, God relented. 
in his mercy. And this is the reality that we need a mediator. We need a mediator. In our sin, we stand before a holy God who must just must, must judge justly. He must, or he's not a just God. But praise the Lord because he has provided a mediator himself. He provided the mediator. The very one we have sinned against is the one who chose to come and stand in the dock on our behalf. The very one that's offended by our sin said, I will go. I will stand. I will be judged on their behalf. It says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Christ the mediator, he put himself on the line. He put himself in the line of fire for our sake. He stepped in and he was blotted out. And Peter went on to preach that because of Christ's mediation, because he stepped in, our sin, all our offense, all our adultery was blotted out. Because Christ took the punishment. God's anger toward your sin was poured out fully at the cross. You remember this? That, that, that actually, some people think, Who's, who, who, who has God saved us from? You can think, Satan. He saved us from Satan. No, no. God saved us from his own wrath. And he's done that by coming himself as a mediator. Coming himself to have the just punishment poured out on himself for us. This was his eternal plan. This is his promises, his purposes being fulfilled. He is unchanging. Moses put all of his hopes on that. Moses put all of his hopes. God, I know who you are. I know what you're like. I know what you've promised. And I'm not moving from that. I'm sticking with it. And this is God's self-declaration in chapter 34. He says this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of mercy, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. See, righteousness was upheld and mercy extended. We found that in our, in our Jesus. He has come to give us mercy. He's come to take away all of our wrongdoing, all of our adulterous behavior. And the temptation might be for us, we think, well, if Christ has mediated, we're covered. So why not carry on as we are? If we're covered for our idolatry, why not carry on with our idolatry? And Paul says to the Romans, may it never be. You were brought to life. Why would you still live in death? Christ died in order that we would die to those things. Christ died to secure for us righteousness, freedom from false gods and idols, man-made images, and unity with the perfect image of the invisible God. They wanted an image of God. We've been given the perfect image of the invisible God, Christ Jesus. We're going to worship him now. We're going to thank him for his salvation from our idolatry. And we're going to ask him, God, would you help me where I still tend to go towards other things? And when I do, it comes out as ugliness. God, I want you to help me. I want to be radiant for you. I want to be righteous for you. Father God, I, I want to thank you so much for your mercy in Christ Jesus. We're so grateful that you sent a mediator 
Christ, we're so grateful that you came willingly to stand in the gap, to take on the wrath of God on yourself, to show us that there is no other way. You are the way. You're the truth. You're the life. God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you. And we ask you, help us to not kid ourselves and turn to other false idols. Lord, we ask you, help us to radiate the beauty of God as we turn to you again and again and worship you and trust you with our hearts. And we, we pray that as we do more and more, we'd find abundant life is in Jesus. Abundant life is in his faithfulness. I pray for brothers and sisters in the room right now who know, yeah, I've, I've got idols. I need, to, I need to kill them. We thank you. You're the idol-killing God. And you're the life-giving God. I pray you'd step in. Help them to trust in you. I pray for those who are going through very difficult wilderness times and saying, I don't know if I can let go of this. I feel like it's my only hope. God, show them. Prize their fingers away. Hold on to them. Say, I've got you. I've got you. I've got you. Trust me. Trust me. Lord, I pray that this church would more and more shine the light of the glory of the salvation of Jesus. Amen. I just feel like as we've um, been singing this song and as we're drawing things to a close that it can be so easy to hear these things and feel our hearts stirred and think well what next what what does this look like for me and there's something in the bible about um, repentance and turning back to God Um, and repentance means turning away from those things turning away from these idols and choosing to turn to God And I feel like there's a call for some of us this morning that actually you've identified things as Tim's been talking and you felt stirred and there's a turning, choosing to turn away for those things and turn back to God. And it's in that place, in turning back to him, that we get to find the hope and the grace that is a a soft and cleansing balm to our hearts in knowing it's not by me, it's not by what I've done, it's not by anything that I could earn, but in my turning back to him through what Jesus has done, there I can find hope, there I can find cleansing, there I can find peace. And like in the prodigal son, when the son, he turns away and he comes back to his father, kind of, I imagine, a bit sheepishly and nervously. And the father, he lifts up his his clothes and he runs out and he runs and he brings in his son with open arms. And that is Jesus' response to our repentance, that he runs to us. He desires to know us. Um, I love the lines of the song that we've been singing. In death, in life, I'm confident I'm covered by the power of your great love. And I'm just going to pray for us. Lord, we want to be people that are willing to humble ourselves and turn away from the things that we know are not right. And maybe if you feel like that's that's you this morning, you want to say, Lord, right now I want to choose to turn away from those things. And I can turn confidently knowing that I'm turning to one who is full of grace and love and gentleness and kindness and forgiveness because of what Jesus has done, because of what he has done and because of what he has won for me. I'm confident of the fact that God, the Father, the God of the universe will come running with open arms and welcome me in and pour out that love and that grace on me. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who does that for us. Lord, we thank you that in your might and your power and your just outstanding um, 
might, Lord, that you treat us with gentleness and grace and kindness and love. And Lord, we thank you for your heart for us in that. Amen.